podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Today we're going to hear from Dr. Steve Dittmore, the Assistant Dean for Outreach and Innovation at the University of Arkansas. Prior to entering higher education, Steve worked for over 10 years in sport public relations. He worked at two Olympic Games, Atlanta 1996 and Salt Lake City 2002, traveling to 10 countries and also presented at the IOC headquarters in Lausanne, uh, Switzerland, which I think is really cool. Um, I worked, you worked three Olympic festivals back when we had Olympic festivals, Pan American Games. Do we still have the Pan American Games, Steve? Yeah, they still, they still exist, a regional championship. Okay. You've worked in NCAA Final Four and countless professional, collegiate, and international sporting events. He also served as the venue media manager for aquatics at the 2015 Special Olympics World Games in Los Angeles. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thank you very much, Karen. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. We're so glad to have you back again because you were a guest with me earlier. I in was, yes. Yes, so we had a good conversation then. So you have been one of the very few people writing about these issues at the University of Minnesota and, and other campuses with regards to Olympic sports. And because of your wealth of experience around the Olympic Games and your experience on college campuses, you can see kind of a landscape more clearly than many other people can. So let's start with the 60 Minutes piece on the University of Minnesota. The athletics department and the university are facing a staggering deficit this year, as are so many other colleges, due to many, many things of which at the moment is being blamed purely on the pandemic. But you and I could have a long discussion about whether that's really accurate or not. Also, the pandemic led us to reduce numbers of football games played in the Big Ten, which reduces all kinds of revenues. Minnesota currently supports 25 varsity sports on approximately a $125 million budget. American universities have been rocked by the coronavirus pandemic. Some have shut their campuses down completely, but schools that play big time sports have gone to remarkable lengths to save their football and basketball seasons. Some colleges are testing every player and coach for the virus every day. And even that hasn't stopped outbreaks. Many games have had to be canceled or rescheduled, but still they press on. They do it, of course, to keep the TV money coming in from football and basketball. But at the same time, dozens of universities have been eliminating smaller secondary sports like gymnastics and tennis and swimming. Those sports are getting the ax because they don't generate much revenue. But the dreams of the athletes are no less real. It was kind of a, a surgical strike, if you will, you know, uh, a 15 minute call to to tell them that your life as you know it has now changed forever. Mike Burns is the men's gymnastics coach at the University of Minnesota. On September 10th, he and the 18 student athletes on his team were about to start practice when their phones all began to buzz. Well, we had a, a text message at about 1.20 p.m. and uh, it said you need to be on a Zoom call at 2 p.m. I hope each of us understand on that call that Minnesota athletic director Mark Coyle told them that the men's gymnastics program would be eliminated along with men's tennis and men's track and field again these are not easy decisions Coyle said the COVID pandemic had blown a multi-million dollar hole in the university's athletic budget 
He said they were cutting salaries and costs wherever possible, but that cutting entire sports was necessary too. I do not regret coming to the University of Minnesota one bit, but I'm still mad. Senior Shane Wiskus is the star gymnast on Minnesota's team, which two years ago finished second overall at the NCAA championships. I think the team that we have right now is arguably one of the most talented teams we've ever had. So to see that a lot of these guys are going to have to be done with the sport, it breaks my heart. Yeah, I mean, just looking at it from the outside, it almost seems like you're on that high bar and when you do one of your dramatic releases, they pull the high bar away. That's exactly how it felt at first. I can tell you that much. Steve, give us your thoughts on why we are where we are today with Olympic sports and the budget situations. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to pretend to know Minnesota's financial sp situation specifically, nor am I going to con comment on their, their decisions, except to say that Olympic sports typically, and what we consider Olympic sports is not always Olympic. There are sports that are contested in the Olympic Games, but then there are some that maybe, um, you know, are in the Olympics, but are not necessarily contested at the collegiate level. And so what, you, what we've seen is a reduction of the number of sports around gymnastics, track and field, wrestling, these types of sports, which don't have a real high profile, don't have a real big visibility anywhere outside of the four-year window of the Olympic Games. They're not something that you find just channel surfing, if you will, unless you happen to get the Olympic channel and stumble across some world championship or world cup event. And, you know, it's interesting to me, I think, you know, I think that you know, the last time that you and I talked, when we talked about why were, why were universities cutting sports in the pandemic, to me, the interesting component here is that universities sponsor sports as a way to drive enrollment. Minnesota, as a large state land-grant metropolitan institution, doesn't need to have sports teams to drive enrollment. They're going to have 50,000 students whether they have a wrestling team or not. But the NCAA in its bylaws and its rules states that in order to compete at the highest level, the football bowl subdivision at the power five level of that, you need to sponsor as an institution 16 sports. And so universities have to fill those gaps between football and men's basketball and women's basketball with other sports. And so they offer wrestling and indoor track and field and outdoor track and field, which we should be clear are two separate sports because there are separate NCAA championships for those. And so they fill those things with all of those different sports. That is very different than what you see at the Division II, the Division III, or the NAI levels. Division I is really the anomaly here, and even FBS is really the anomaly. So Minnesota's, the Stanford's, the Clemson's, these big schools that have cut sports, Iowa, during the pandemic, it's not going to affect their enrollment. But if you do the same thing at a Division III school, you know, in a small liberal arts school in Pennsylvania or Ohio or Indiana or someplace like that, it could have a profound impact. If 40% of your student body is made up of student athletes, you cut a sport, you're reducing the number of people that want to come to your campus. So I think it's important to always separate out the issues and not try to paint the, the whole canvas of college athletics with this brush. Now, as it relates to Olympic sports, we can get into, and maybe this is where you want to go, a much longer conversation about why is it that 
in our country, in our sport delivery system, the national governing bodies that oversee sports rely on the collegiate athletic landscape to train their athletes. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. Why is that structure the way it is? So, I mean, it really, I think you can trace the history on it to the fact that the NCAA says that colleges and universities need to sponsor a requisite number of sports in order to be competed at individual level. And so universities add things like soccer and volleyball and wrestling and those sports to fill up that number. Our country is unique in that we have an education-based development system for sports. Kids grow up, they play it in middle school, they play in junior high school, they play it at the high school level, and then they go on to play it in college level. Sometimes they have summer travel club teams and so forth. And I know you've got Tom Ferry on your podcast in the past to talk a lot about the youth sport culture in this country, but that's really unique. Europe is going to have a club-based system where you go and you get involved in a club and you have similar instruction and similar sport delivery all the way up through that progression. You're not having a different coach for your AAU team, for your high school team, for your junior high team, and your college team. In 1978, Congress passed what was then known as the Amateur Sports Act. It's now since been renamed the Ted Stevens Olympic and Amateur Sports Act. And that created the U.S. Olympic Committee and gave the USOC the responsibility to develop Olympic level athletes. The USOC has given that responsibility to their national governing bodies, of which there are roughly 40 or so national governing bodies. Those organizations are not, for the most part, not heavily funded. The U.S. Tennis Association, the U.S. Golf Association, of course, USA Basketball, large revenue organizations. USA Field Hockey, as you well know, is not well funded. Right. And, and so... Yeah. And so yeah. they have to rely. They can't just have athletes training year round. They have to rely on some other body, some other organization to help develop and coach and create talent that can compete at the Olympic level. And so the governing bodies in the USOC have been more than happy to let colleges and universities take on that responsibility. You wanted to you want a field hockey team? Absolutely. And I had some data um, a while back that 100% of the field hockey athletes who competed at the 2016 games in Rio from the United States were all former college student athletes. Sure. Yeah. Makes sense. And that's, but that's not the case for all Olympic sports. Not right. everyone that competes in the Olympics was a college athlete. And, but field hockey, it's absolutely critical and essential that USA field hockey has a developmental system that involves colleges and universities. I mean, I'm, I don't know what their annual budget is, but I can't imagine it's much more than a million dollars. You know, yeah, and they have trouble with sponsorships. They have trouble locating national team training centers. They mm -hmm. have trouble with uh, paying for tours. And what compounds it is the Operation Gold, which is rewards teams and individuals who win gold medals that further kind of exacerbates the haves and have nots in the Olympic structure. Do I have that right? Absolutely. In field hockey, you know, they're competing for one medal. There might be 20 athletes on the team and 20 individual athletes may receive a medal, but that only counts once in the medal standings. That's just one medal that they're competing for. Right, 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 right. So, so I think, what, uh, go ahead, Karen, I'm sorry. No, I was, was going to move on, but finish your thought on that. Then I'll move on to the next well, question. Well, I was just going to, I was just going to add to that. I think what, so so where we are then with respect to tying it back to cutting sports like Minnesota, 
it doesn't necessarily damage wrestling that much. It, it hurts, but it doesn't damage them that much. There are enough other universities that sponsor wrestling that their athletes can go through. There's enough other delivery mechanisms. The, the armed forces have wrestling clubs and a number of Greco-Roman wrestling uh, athletes go through club systems in, in the military rather than through a traditional education-based system. And so there are other avenues in wrestling for that. Uh, track and field, there's still plenty of schools and universities that offer track and field. It's, it's these smaller sports like a field hockey or you know gymnastics and volleyball, particularly on the men's side, because those are not popular college sports, but they're still Olympic sports, men's volleyball, men's, um, men's gymnastics. And there's fewer than 15 men's gymnastics programs now left at the division one level in, in college sports. That's gonna be really difficult if that, is the, if that is the developmental system that gymnastics pursues. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things you wrote was um, that Sarah Wilhelmy of the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee, when asked by um, someone about a bit, how big a role colleges and universities play in producing Olympic athletes, was really happy to talk about this. She said 85% of our entire US 2016 Olympic team, our medalists were college athletes. We did a case study with USA Swimming and we looked over a 10 year period to see what our footprint was. There were 370 athletes that were on Team USA in that 10-year period were swimming 366 of the 370 competed in college. So I, I'm curious about your comments because it appears that there might be some advantages for individual sport athletes to survive this pipeline if their sports get dropped that uh, over, uh, override what team sport athletes have. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, and I, I don't dispute um, Sarah's numbers on that. I think they're probably accurate. I think that like any form of data and, and data set that you have to, you know, kind of step back and, and evaluate a little more closely. Counted in those 85% of the athletes that were former student athletes is going to be somebody like um, Missy Franklin who won medals in London in 2012 as a high school athlete, swam at Cal for two years, then quit Cal so that she could earn a bunch of scholarship or excuse me, a bunch of sponsorship dollars leading up to the Rio games. So it's a little disingenuous, I think, to count her as being somebody that was developed by the college system. She was already an Olympic medalist before she even did that. Right. Um, you know, and the same could be held through held for college basketball players that you know go on to the NBA after one year and then go and compete in the Olympic Games as a as a as a basketball player representing Team USA. You know, they weren't really developed by the college system. So I think I think that that those numbers need to just be scrutinized a little bit more closely. You know, your comment about individual sports is true, and I think. You know, when you think about individual sports, you think about things like track and field, like swimming, in which there are individual events. But at the collegiate level, they compete for team championships as well. And so they're a part of that team. So Missy Franklin at Cal would have been swimming for the Cal team and the points that she accrued go toward being a team champion in women's swimming and diving at Cal. But really, we know her as an outstanding individual swimmer, not as a part of a team. And so I think you're right that those individual athletes have an opportunity, perhaps, to, 
to kind of go in a in a in a different fashion on that. I think I think some of the sports you know that you've seen cut a lot in the pandemic, golf and tennis, principally, also kind of fit that. Well, they're they're team sports, but they're really we're focused on the individuals, and those are sports where you know tennis. Serena and Venus Williams are the some of the best women's tennis players in history. They never went to college. They didn't, they, tennis didn't need that college stepping stone to develop Olympic level athletes. Such an interesting topic. Um, now let's look forward to, we don't even know if the Tokyo Olympic games are gonna right. happen in 2021. So let's jump ahead to the Olympic program in Paris in 2024. And you wrote that in, in your um, newsletter that of the 32 Olympic sports, only 16, half of the 2024 Olympic sports have NCAA sanctioned national championships, athletics, which is track, rowing, basketball, fencing, football, golf, gymnastics, uh, by the way, football is soccer, gymnastics, hockey, wrestling, water sports, equestrian sports, tennis, shooting, triathlon, sailing, and volleyball. I think a lot of folks might be surprised to hear that only half of the Olympic sports in 2024 are based in the college setting in some way. Um, And in fact, 11 of those sports though, if you pull them out, have been victims on some college campus of being dropped, whether they're victims of budget problems or reprioritizing of athletic finances. And many of those have been the men's version only, which seems particularly cruel. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts that you have about all of that decision? Oh yeah, I mean, there's like lots of thoughts that I have. Yes. I mean, first and fo- first and foremost, I think one of the things you have to look at is what sports are the is the IOC including in future Olympic games. Yes. So they have made a conscious decision to get younger, and they've done that through things like, um, like surfing and rock climbing and BMX racing, and um, you know, cycling is one of those that's a big Olympic sport. But there are no colleges and universities that sponsor cycling. You know, mountain biking. BMX, the, the track and road cycling, those are all big, big sports in the Olympic Games, but they're not contested at the collegiate level. So while the, U, well, excuse me, while the IOC is trying to really figure out how do we latch on to a TV audience that is increasingly less interested in traditional sports and being traditional fans of sports and are much more interested in things like BMX and rock climbing and, and, and surfing and, and all that, I think the college setting is going to ultimately have to reflect that in some fashion. Uh, and you, we see that a lot as colleges and universities have added esports during this pandemic. We've seen a tremendous growth, particularly at the Division Three and NAIA level, of universities having that. And, and I think that that plays into a stereotypical um, you know, view of esports is that it's dominated by men. And so I think that plays into some of this is, if we're gonna cut sports for a variety of Title IX related reasons, whether they're true or not, we think we need to cut a men's sport because typically the lawsuits that emulate out of Title IX are from the female perspective that will you cut this women's sport where the underrepresented gender as it relates to opportunities to play sports, you can't do that. So they cut men's sports, and that's that's kind of the 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 easy way out of that. And I'm not a Title IX expert, so you know I, I don't want to to overstep my my expertise here. But I think what you what you see is esports is a way to combat that because you're probably going to attract more male students having an esports team. 
Now, esports is not part of the Olympics, but the interesting thing is, is that that's, I think, college athletics trying to get younger as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the one thing that I saw in, you know, just even just this week, as we're recording this on January 14th, Fairleigh Dickinson University added men's volleyball. And, and this, I think, gets to where, where I think colleges and universities ought to be looking at this is they, they Fairleigh Dickinson, got a grant from $150,000 from a local volleyball club to add this sport. Other college or other Olympic sports, triathlon is one of these first and foremost, where they have been issuing grants to colleges and universities to help create programs, offset some of the startup costs. And to me, that model is really what the USOC and what our Olympic uh, leaders should be doing is trying to incentivize colleges and universities to create programs rather than going in the reverse direction, which is cutting them. Um, And the other thing I think too about that is that yes, every, every athlete wants to compete at the division one level. Well, if division one isn't the pinnacle of that sport any longer, if so many schools drop men's volleyball that all of a sudden, you know, a school, I, I know from my time at East Stroudsburg, East Stroudsburg had a men's volleyball team. If all of a sudden East Stroudsburg in, in the, you know, Pocono Mountains of Pennsylvania has a strong men's volleyball team, that becomes the pinnacle, right? I mean, yes, it's not Penn State, but it is a really good program at the highest level athletically, maybe not the highest level as we would think about um, from a division one, two, and three perspective. But so I think that those things, we need to get past some of our historical stereotypes and our historical way of looking at these things to say, oh, well, if Stanford drops the sport, well, then it, it, you know, water polo is not important because Stanford dropped it. I don't, I don't remember if Stanford dropped water polo or not, but I know they they dropped yachting. So sailing or yachting is not important because Stanford dropped it. Well, no, if we can incentivize other schools and and focus on geography, focus on places where there's competition that's close by. One of the challenges with, with sailing and some of these other sports is, you know, you got to travel halfway across the country just to find somebody else to compete against, you know, and that just drives up all the costs. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you get me thinking about sports like sailing and some of the sports that have sort of been on the fringe here a little bit. And I'm reading about the billions and billions of dollars that's pouring into sports at all levels right now, uh, pouring into sports technology, pouring into other areas, all about just trying to leverage what the next big thing is going to be. And there's these um, special purpose acquisition companies that are emerging that allow investors to try to go after improving or creating some aspect of the of the sports industry that's the one i've been focusing on and i gotta wonder for thinking outside the box here if there's not some room in college sports maybe through the olympic committee or, or the national governing body or maybe even through their coaches association to try to create special purpose acquisition committees that have the funds to be able to grant what you're saying, some money to, to, to seed these particular programs to be able to keep them alive. I mean, it just seems like there's so much money in sports that the colleges could look at asking for some of that money to come in and support these opportunities. But I don't know, maybe I'm thinking too far outside the box. Well, I mean, I think, no, I don't think you're thinking too far out of the box. I think creative solutions are, are great. I think one of the things that this, and we haven't yet touched on it yet, but 
uh, Congress has created a, a body called the Empowering Olympic and Paralympic Amateur Athletes Act, the EOP AAA. And this is a 16 member commission that is designed to look at and has a deliverable of July 31st to Congress of recommendations to revise, restructure, um, you know, whatever related to, to the Olympic sport development in this country, because the USOC at the end of the day is created by Congress. It is a governmental agency. It, it is one, it is a nonprofit that exists within a federal statute. And if, if we as a country were truly interested in creating a different pipeline and creating more Olympic champions and doing a better job of, of developing elite athletes, you know, our federal government could allocate more resources to sure. that. Yeah. Now, whether we can argue for a long time, whether that's the best use of funds, it's probably not at this point in time in our, in our nation's history to be doing that. And so in that case, then maybe the private sector comes in. But is that the appropriate thing? And, and you know, the other challenge that the Olympic sports and college sports have had for a long time is the thing that you talked about in terms of, um, I guess we were talking about before we got on, but just the training that goes into an athlete and the amount of hours that he or she needs to spend and their inability to hold a job because they've got to be in residence someplace, they've got to be working out. You know, college athletes, they can't, you know, I know we're getting some name, image, and likeness, and there are some other things that can help supplement them, but they, they may have to, you know, they can't earn money while they're a college athlete. You know, the NCAA says you can't be a professional and an amateur at the same time. The Olympic movement's kind of relaxed a little bit on that and been like, yeah, you know, we're, we're more open to this. Um, but, you know, back, back in 2002, you alluded to my experience in 2002 in Salt Lake. I remember one of the great mogul skiers of 2002 was a guy named Jeremy Bloom, who went on to play some time in the NFL as a wide receiver, Philadelphia Eagles in your neck of the woods there. But he quit the Colorado football team because they, the NCAA said, you can't be a mogul skier as a professional and earn sponsorship at the same time that you're a college football player, even though those two sports had nothing to do with one another. Right. And I can also recall in plenty of instances where, and, and one of these in particular, Chris Wanky was a pitcher in the minor leagues for a number of years, never made it to the major leagues, drafted out of St. Paul, Minnesota, went to the Toronto Blue Jays organization, left baseball after earning millions of dollars and signing bonuses and things, went back to Florida State where he was a quarterback and won the Heisman Trophy. So you can't tell me that there's not a way for the U.S. Olympic Committee and the NCAA to figure out ways that are better athlete-focused yeah. solutions to these challenges and these things. And that's what the EOP AAA is designed to do, is to help further identify and clarify some of these kind of gray spaces for, for athletes. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I think, that, you know, obviously the Olympic movement itself in the United States has undergone tremendous scrutiny with USA Women's Gymnastics and a whole host of scandals. Um, and, and I do know, I remember at least from 2016 that they kind of, they allowed athletes to make money on their, you know, their sponsorships, their partnerships up until three weeks before the Olympic Games. And they sort of put a firewall around what the athlete could do or promote or say about their partnership 
until the games were over. What were your thoughts on that? Do you, do you have a sense of maybe, is that a good workaround or is this another bureaucratic problem? So, I mean, that's, that's really more of an IOC thing because the IOC, okay. you know, the IOC really aggressively protects the interest of its sponsors. And, you know, in terms of clean venues, this idea of venues that are void of sponsorship signage and other sorts of brand images, you know, the Masters Golf Tournament and the Olympic Games are the two preeminent clean venue facilities. You don't see any other signage or any other corporate logos, except maybe what the athlete is wearing. Even, even the Masters, the, the caddies all just wear their, their white suits that they wear. But, you know, it's why if you watch the Olympics, the Olympic athletes are very well trained to get their sponsors recognized during the games. If you ever were to watch, say, a, um, a downhill skiing event, one of the first things that the athletes do when they get to the end run and they, they stop and they look up at the scoreboard and they see their, their time is that they immediately drop their goggles and they turn them around so that you can read the logo of the, of the goggles around their neck and they raise up one ski so that you can read the bottom of the ski and see whether it's A2 or Rosignol or whatever. But, but those, are all, those are all legal in the eyes of the IOC ways to get their sponsorships, um, expo their sponsors exposure. That makes total sense. So in, in kind of bringing this to a close, I think this, this whole conversation gets to the broader issue of college sports on campus and in Division One, should it be our, as in higher ed's, responsibility to provide all athletes the chance to perform at a very high level, or just our athletic programs that make money? I know we could talk about this for hours, but you know, if you if you tie in that partnership between elite athletic performance and the Olympics, how do the other sports then uh, survive and, and justify themselves? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, and my. My perspective on this, I think, has evolved over the years. Um, you know, I would say that part of the mission of a college and university is to provide opportunities for individuals, young adults, to pursue activities, studies, things that they are interested and passionate about. And if one of those is playing a sport, great. Let's give them an opportunity. We we have choirs on campus, we have bands on campus, orchestras, things like that for those individuals that are interested in those activities, extracurricular programs, why not have athletic programs and allow athletes to pursue those? I mean, that's what we do at the high school level. Why would we stop that at the college level? The, the question about elite gets a little more nuanced because I think, again, taking football, men's basketball, even to a certain extent, college baseball, college ice hockey, some of these other sports where there's a real kind of pipeline into the pros and athletes get drafted and all that. If you take them out of the equation, if you're looking at the volleyballs and maybe the soccers and the lacrosses and the field hockeys, if you're looking at those, then I think, yeah, this is the place colleges and universities can be a good place to develop elite athletes. Um, but I think I don't know that those things need to exist on the same campuses as the schools that offer football, men's basketball. I, mean, I, I think to a certain degree, you know, the, the really nuclear option for my mind is you take the 125 schools in FBS and they just break away and they say, all right, we're gonna do away with the NCAA rule about 16 sports. We're gonna offer football, men's basketball, men's ice hockey, baseball. We're gonna offer women's volleyball, women's soccer. We're gonna offer women's basketball, women's ice hockey and softball. And, and we're gonna call it a day, right? 
and, and that's going to be it. And let those other sports go to other campuses and let those universities really kind of develop a culture. Cause I think you could, I mean, if all of a sudden the best Olympic track and field athlete or the best Olympic field hockey player is now at Penn state, maybe she's already is at Penn state. Um, you know, if that's really where they are, then maybe that gets a little bit more exciting for that campus. Or if it, even if it's a smaller school, maybe that generates more excitement, more energy and buzz because at the end of the day, that's what every school wants to be able to say is, hey, we have these Olympians. Mm -hmm. But that's, that, that resonates less, I think. You know, my institution, University of Arkansas, we have a very strong track and field program. We've won 40 some odd NCAA championships. And so we, you know, we have Olympic level, Olympic medalist athletes walking around our campus. But nobody recognizes that because football, men's basketball, baseball are the dominant sports. Why not have those athletes go and compete at a smaller school or a more regional school where they can really get the attention and the adulation that they deserve based on their athletic achievements, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you think about Oregon, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. they're one of the few schools that you could say track has the, the legacy that, that a football might have, but that's it in, in, yeah. in my world in track and field. But. You're absolutely right. Well, as we're closing out, looking into 2021, what do you think the Olympics has learned about finances in the pandemic? What do you think? Anything? Nothing? Everything? <laughs> what they have learned is, I mean, <laughs> they've learned the same thing every sport organization is, we need insurance policies. And, and those are going to become extremely expensive now and going forward, yeah. right? Um, you know, the, the force de majeure clauses and things like that, that, uh, you know, every, every athletic organization is getting into. And I, th I you see that even at the, at the youth and the club and the travel level where you've got, okay, we're going to have this event and people pay their registration fee. And then maybe we got to cancel it because of COVID. Is that a reason to refund money? And, you know, so I think that's the challenge for, for all sports. And yes, it manifests itself on a large scale with the Olympics just because of the profile and the visibility and the fact that it only comes around every four years. We can't say, oh, we can do that next year. You know, yeah. that's, that's not what, what the, they don't want to keep pushing that off because you get to 2022 and now all of a sudden, again, you've got a winter games in 2022. Right. And the IOC did away with that after 1984. That was the last year in which there were, no, after 92, excuse me, after 92 was the last year in which the Olympics summer and winter games were contested in the same year because it's just too it dilutes the winter games by doing that yeah absolutely and then get more sponsorships out of it but they run it every two years versus every four more, more exposure for sure yeah. more exposure absolutely yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. well steve Bitmore, thank you so much for talking to us about this unique relationship between you know non-revenue sports also known as olympic sports and also the olympic movement and maybe offering our listeners some ideas about you know, how the two organizations can work better together to serve the needs of the athletes who are truly trying to be the very best they can be. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Karen. It was a pleasure to be with you again. And, and I do think that, you know, your audience, pay attention to what the EOP AAA does here over the next six, seven months. Um, I think that the, the time is right for some change in terms of the relationship between the USOC and its governing bodies and the college athletic landscape. I don't know what that will look like, but I do think that, that something good could come out of this. Well, I'm certainly hoping there will, because I understand there's an NCAA committee working on it as well. So maybe some good minds will come up with some great things. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Karen. Okay.